0: Turn your Bibles to Mark, the Gospel of Mark. I know some of you have already been reading ahead, because you've mentioned that, which is good because uh, it'll help us get our footing. This morning, we're going to be doing our introduction to the Gospel of Mark, which means that it's going to be a little bit more academic um, than normal. We won't spend as much time in the text. We'll spend some time in the text. But um, one of the things that I've mentioned um, time and time again, as you guys have heard my teaching for years, I guess, um, is that oftentimes understanding a book means you have to understand how it's written, why it's written, um, how it flows. Especially when it comes to things like poetry. You know, when we went through Psalms, um, and I showed you how the poetry works, that can help you to appreciate. And so that's partly why we do the introductions to books like this. It's our preparation, so that when we go through the book, those things come to mind. If you know why a book was written, and how it's put together, and certain words or phrases that are used throughout the book... It helps you come to grips with it, and then helps you to properly interpret it, because everything has a context. So today, that's going to be the the purpose that we have, is to go through and sort of take a a bird's eye view of the book of Mark. And I'm hoping that in doing that, you'll look at it and you'll say, wow, I didn't see that before. And then as we go through it and study it, those things will come back to mind. That's partly what gets me excited about about, uh, the scriptures. It's not just the content, but it's the way that God put it together. It's some of the best literature in the world. And you're going to see today in the book of Mark that there's some things that he does that are um, literary in nature that are kind of cool. And it'll help us ultimately to put the whole thing into perspective. But let's first start with the author himself. Um, Who wrote Mark? see a couple of you guys are afraid to say it. (laughs) It's Mark. Yeah. Anybody know who Mark was? He's got another name. In fact, he's got two names. I went, When I went to seminary, I had a roommate. His name was Mark Adam. That was his first name. Not his middle name. His first name was Mark Adam. This Mark also has another first name. Anybody know who it is? It's John Mark. Do you know who John Mark was? He was a cousin of somebody in the scriptures. Yeah, Barnabas. Okay? So he's the cousin of Barnabas. His name is also John Mark. He was actually fairly active in ministry. We find him through uh, Acts, Colossians, Philemon. We see him in 2 Timothy. We see him in 1 Peter. He was fairly active in ministry. But there was a specific event at one time that John Mark is known for that involved the Apostle Paul. Anybody know what that episode was? Yeah. The Apostle Paul and John Mark had some conflict. John Mark had gone on on the first missionary journey with Paul And about halfway through that missionary journey, John Mark decided to go home. We don't know why, but he left. And it caused a rift with Paul, because in the next journey, Paul refused to take him, even though he wanted to go along. And so it caused a rift, and so Paul went one direction, and John Mark went another direction. Again, we don't know why that happened, but it was a a concern to Paul, because Paul relied on these men that he traveled with to help him in his ministry. It's like a ministry partner. Think of, say, a pastor leading a church, and all of a sudden his associate pastor decides to just get up and leave. Then all that burden falls back on the senior pastor, right? And so it was very similar. And so we don't have a great introduction to John Mark when we first learn about him in the scriptures because of that. However, what's kind of interesting about that is he kind of redeemed himself. In fact, I want you to turn to Philemon, look at verse 24 with me, if you will. And we'll do a little bit of hopping around today. You'll notice there in Philemon, it actually says that Mark was a fellow worker. So Paul, at that point, refers to him as a fellow worker. What's kind of interesting is, didn't they have a split? Didn't they have some tension between them? Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul says something else rather interesting. This is the last letter Paul wrote. He's at the end of his life. He's, He's facing death. And he writes this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. You see, that rift between John Mark and the Apostle Paul was mended. So at some point, Paul allowed John Mark to come alongside him and to minister with him again, and he became a partner, a fellow worker in his ministry, to the point where at the end of his life, Paul basically says, Timothy, only Luke is here with me. When you come, would you please bring John Mark because he's useful to me? So there was that restored relationship. And so John Mark had become a valued ministry partner. Now, there's something else interesting about that. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 5, mentions Mark, and he calls him my son. Now, the reason that's important is because it appears, in church history sort of indicates this, many of the church fathers indicate this, that John Mark actually spent more time traveling with Peter as Peter's companion And in fact, that's most likely where John learned the material that is in his book, in his gospel. Because John Mark was not a witness to Christ when he was here on earth. Everything he learned was probably from Paul and from Peter. And we'll see this in a a little bit here. Most people believe that John Mark's material in his gospel was from Peter's preaching. That as he traveled with Peter... And as he learned the things that Peter preached, that's what ultimately became the Gospel of Mark. So he became a, a worthy minister, a fellow worker, a companion, even after a somewhat rocky start. As to when it was written, we're not really sure, but somewhere probably around the late 50s, so about 20 or 30 years after Christ's death is probably when Mark wrote this. Mark's, or I'm sorry, Matthew and John's Gospel, as um, we've alluded to this morning, are written to Jewish readers. Mark is a lot like Luke, and the primary audience, as Steve has mentioned this morning, was Gentiles. And we know that because as we look at the Gospel of Mark, some of the things that sort of set it apart, he doesn't quote the Old Testament as much as some of the other Gospel writers do. There might be a reason for that. The Gentile readers would not have been as familiar with the Old Testament. When he mentions Jewish customs through the book, he actually explains them. Well, he explains them because the Gentiles might not understand them. He also translates Aramaic terms in the book, which means when he quotes stuff from the Old Testament, sometimes the Old Testament was in Aramaic rather than Hebrew. Well, when he quotes passages that are in Aramaic, he actually translates those for his users, explains what the words mean. And again, you would expect that of a Gentile audience, not necessarily a Jewish audience. And then the other thing is, when he references time, he uses the Roman calendar, rather than the Jewish calendar. Now, why are these things important? Well, most of us in this room are Gentiles. Mark's Gospel is written to us, not that the others weren't, but there are specific reasons and purposes why you might write one way to one type of audience and another way to another audience. Um, Mark is a storyteller and he does a lot of details. He puts details into his book that aren't found in the other Gospels. Um, in fact, one of my favorite, uh, my favorite, I'll call it funny verses of the Gospel of Mark on how he does this. There's this scene where when Jesus was at the Garden of Gethsemane and they arrest him, John indicates that there was a man there who was naked and covered with a robe. And he tries to escape. He tries to run away and they grab the robe and he runs away naked. It's just one or two verses. And you wonder, why in the world is that in the text? None of the other authors do that. But Mark seems to include that and stick that in. He does a lot of that in his, in his book where he likes to explain little details here and there. And I don't know what that first century church would have saw in that uh, there must have been a reason why Mark included it but um, he does it with a lot of little tiny details and so those things help us to understand who he's writing to and why he's writing so again he learned most of what he wrote from Peter's preaching he wrote primarily to Gentiles Um, begs the question why do we have four Gospels? anybody wonder about that? wouldn't one Gospel be enough? and we have four Gospels that all teach us about the life of Christ. Have you ever wondered why it is that we have four of them? It has a different focus, but I yeah, I mean that that really is the key. Each one has a different focus, a different purpose. Um, I'm going to use a fancy term here for you. Um, let me ask you this: What are the gospels? Somebody shout them out for me. What are the four gospels? Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Yeah, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Okay, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Have a special term that's used to refer to them. And then Mark is sort of by itself. Anybody know what that special term is? It's synoptic. Okay? Matthew, Mark, and Luke are referred to as the synoptic gospels. It means they're all similar. And then John's a little bit different. John kind of stands out. There's, if you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you see a lot of the same stuff. And then there's John. And he has some of the same stuff, but a lot of other stuff that's not found in those three. And so those three are very similar. And because of that, there's a debate about, well, okay, who wrote first? And they must have copied each other is what they claim. And so general consensus is Mark wrote his gospel first, and then Matthew and Luke actually copied Mark. That's what they want to tell us. Okay? There's some problems with that, though. Because Matthew, or Mark, I'm sorry, Mark appears to be written very, very early because of some of the stuff that's in it. But not only that, I want you to think about something. Who is Matthew? What's that? Who is Matthew? Was he one of the twelve? He was a witness to Christ, right? Why would Matthew have to copy from Mark who was not a witness to Christ? Doesn't make sense, does it? Matthew saw these things. So he wouldn't have to rely on Mark to write his gospel, because he was there. Mark was not, if anything, Mark would have copied from Matthew, right? To be real frank, I don't buy into any of the copying stuff. The reason we have these debates about who copied who is because of something called source criticism. And what that basically means is people that don't really believe in the inspiration of the scriptures, they just want to look at it as literature. And so because the synoptic gospels are all very similar, somebody had to copy from somebody, and it's really important to them who copied from who. Because it couldn't be inspiration. But think about this for a minute. Who's ultimately the author of the four Gospels? Don't be afraid to say it. Can't be wrong. Well, you can be, but I won't point it out. Who's ultimately the the author of the four Gospels? Come on, you you guys know. The Holy Spirit. God is the author, right? So does it shock us that when you have four books about Jesus that are really authored by God himself that there's going to be some similarities the details are going to be similar we're talking about historical events that are written down recorded all under the inspiration of the holy spirit the solution to why are the three gospels very similar is because they were all written by the same author ultimately God himself it's not that somebody copied somebody else now, Luke does mention that he used other sources, but it was eyewitnesses and other things. So Luke did his own research to, to build his gospel. So basically, what we have here are these four gospels that are all, actually three of them are very, very similar. They're all written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which tells us why they're, they're so similar. Um, again, I don't get into the whole debate as to who wrote first necessarily or who copied who. They're just all inspired. Because God is ultimately the author. But that does then get to the question of why do we have the four, especially when they're so similar. Well, we've already talked about one. There's different audiences. Matthew and Luke, I'm sorry, Matthew and John are written primarily to a Jewish audience. Luke and Mark are written primarily to Gentiles. So we have something written for Jews, something written for Gentiles. The reason that would be important is if I'm communicating to a particular culture and an audience, I want to do it in a way that makes sense to them. So while they're telling the same stories about Christ in many respects, you communicate those stories different based on the culture, based on norms, based on languages, right? So, two different gospel, or not two different gospels, but two different groups of books, if you will. Mark and Luke are for the Gentiles, and then we have Matthew and John that are written primarily for the Jews. Now, each one also has a different purpose. Specifically a different purpose. Matthew's Gospel heavily focuses on Jesus' teaching. I'm going to show you something here in a second that will give you a great visual for it. But Matthew is all about let Jesus talk. And so if you read the Gospel of Matthew, you're going to see just tons of teaching from Jesus, not just about Jesus, okay? Luke tells us why he wrote his. He wanted to write an accurate historical record of Jesus' life. And so Luke actually has two Gospels. The Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. And he tells us in Acts why he did that. It was to write this accurate historical So his purpose is primarily historical. To tell us about, I don't know if you've heard the phrase before, the historical Jesus. Today what that refers to is Jesus was just a man. He might not have even lived. He never died on the cross. And it's all... A Newsweek cover. That's not what we're talking about. Luke said, and I'm going to tell you about the real historical Jesus. So that was his purpose. Okay. So Matthew is all about the teaching of Jesus. Luke is about the historical reality of Christ in the early church. Then we have John. John's gospel is apologetic and evangelistic. What's interesting about John is that John wrote his gospel later. And it appears that his whole purpose was to fill in the gaps. In other words, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all very similar. I'm going to tell you a bunch of stuff from first-hand experience, because he was there with Jesus. I'm going to tell you a bunch of stuff you don't know about Jesus. So it's to fill in those gaps, and it was evangelistic in nature, that you might know that Jesus is the Son of God. That was his whole point. Okay, And then it's very apologetic in nature, proving things. And so that was John's focus in his gospel. So what about Mark then? What is Mark's purpose? Well, he actually lays this out for us in verse 1 of chapter 1. So go ahead and open up Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Mark tells us exactly what his purpose is. He says this in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Seems very simple. There's two things he says there. Jesus was the Messiah. That's the Greek word. Christ, the Son of God. That's an important statement to his book. It's going to actually shape some stuff from a, uh, from a liturgy standpoint, if you will, or a literature standpoint. Let's go ahead and unpack some of this. There's some neat things in this first verse here. I'm going to look at that phrase, the beginning of the gospel. Isn't that kind of a, an interesting statement, the way he opens it up? The beginning of the gospel of Christ, the Son of God. The Greek word for gospel there is evangelon. And it refers to good news or good tidings. You've heard that before. What's interesting is that among the Romans, it referred to joyful news and was tied specifically to the cult of the emperors. You remember, the Romans actually worshipped their emperors, they thought their emperors were gods. This phrase is something Mark took from the Romans. And he uses it here. And we'll see why in a second. <laughs> Anybody know who Octavian is? Kimberly really does. He was the nephew of, of Julius Caesar. Yeah. Uh, Octavian uh, then ruled Rome after the Western. Yeah. Octavian. Okay, a Roman emperor. They uh, thought he was... In fact, his full name was... He was also referred to as Augustus. But right around 9 BC. Now, here's what's really interesting about this. We've actually found an inscription on a Roman calendar that says this. The birthday of the God was for the world. That God there is. That God there is. So it says, The birthday of the God was for the world. Here's the phrase. The beginning of joyful tidings which have been proclaimed on his account. Now here's what's interesting about that. I'm going to read you something. This is from a commentary by William Lane. He says this. An evangel in the Roman world referred to, and here's the quote, a historical event which introduces a new situation for the world. In this perspective, the Roman would understand Mark's proclamation of Jesus the Messiah. Beginning with the inauguration of Jesus' public ministry, Mark announces Jesus' coming as an event that brings about a radically new state of affairs for mankind. Let me sort of paraphrase it for you. What the Romans did was when, when they celebrated, say, a birthday of an emperor or an emperor becoming em, an individual becoming an emperor, they would they would celebrate what's called an evangel. An evangelist is this, this celebration, this announcement of good news because this God is now our ruler and that would usher in a whole new era for Rome. In other words, this was a historical event that's going to change everything going forward. And so what Mark does is he steals that phrase from the Romans because he's writing to Romans and he says, Jesus Christ, this is the beginning of a new era, a new historical event that's going to radically change the world. Is that cool? So he basically is talking to Romans who already understood what it meant. And he's saying, "No, it's not your emperors. It's Jesus Christ. This is the beginning of a whole new era." Doesn't that just make doesn't it just bring chills to you when you think What God had promised in the Old Testament was exactly what happened at the birth of Christ. That God in flesh would come and usher in a whole new era of God's redemptive plan for mankind. And Mark identifies, my purpose is to talk to you about this. And so he identifies Jesus as an individual who has come into the world to radically change history and set in motion a whole new era for mankind. Let's look at the next phrase. He says, of Jesus Christ, and that's important there as well, because it says something about Christ. How many of you know that Christ is not Jesus' last name? It's not. Jesus is the first name. Christ is the last name. What's his the yeah. What's his middle name? Yeah. Jokes about that, right? No. Christ was actually the title. You might translate it this way: Jesus the Christ. It's basically a translation of an Old Testament Hebrew word. Does anybody know what the equivalent word is in Hebrew for Christ? Christ is the Greek. What's the Old Testament word that that reflects? Anybody know? Messiah. What's the word in English? Messiah. Messiah. Yeah. So what we basically have the Hebrew Old Testament word is Messiah or Messiah. It's the word for anointed one. Greek the translation or when you translate it into Greek, it's Christ. So another way to read this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus the Messiah. Or, since he's writing to Romans who spoke Greek, he uses the Greek term, Christ. So it's an identification that he's going to tell us that Jesus is the Messiah. That's going to be one of his purposes. He goes on then, he says, the Son of God, and the reason that's important is because it's a declaration of deity, is it not? But it's also proof of his Messiahship as well because the Old Testament promised that the Anointed One, the Messiah, would also be God in flesh. So what we basically have here, in this introductory verse, is Mark tells us his purpose. His purpose is to inform us, to prove to us, to show us that Jesus is the Messiah promised in the Old Testament and the Son of God. Those two things. That's his purpose. And we're going to see how his book is laid out to do just that. So while we have Matthew having a purpose to just teach us, just have us see the words of Christ teaching us, John is evangelistic, trying to, trying to bring people to Christ. He's, he's trying to fill in the gaps. We have Luke giving us a historical account. What we have with Mark is, I'm going to prove to you that Jesus Christ is the Messiah promised in the Old Testament, and he's the Son of God. That's his purpose. So as we go through it, that's what we're going to be looking for. When we go through the book, we're going to want to see those things. Because that's what he's trying to do for us. Let's talk about how he kind of does this, and how the book is laid out, because that's actually important for us. Mark is kind of hard to break down into distinct sections. When we went through First 2 Corinthians recently, we kind of showed you how there's three distinct sections in the book. Okay? Oftentimes that's the case. It was the case with the Book of Romans, as we did, that was easy to outline because there were clear sections. Well, Mark is kind of hard to do that with. Um, scholars have tried. Generally, what they do is they break the book down. The first, uh, well, let say eight chapters or so, they try to say that that's Jesus's Galilean ministry because he spends most of his time in Galilee, according to Mark. Then, from chapters nine through ten, it's sort of his journey to Jerusalem. And then lastly, his ministry in Jerusalem, chapters 11 through 16. So they've tried to break the book down into these three sections Jesus in Galilee, then this journey to Jerusalem, and then his time in in Jerusalem. The problem is nobody can agree on where those sections start and end. Okay? Um, Part of the reason is that John actually, or I'm sorry, Mark actually wrote his book as sort of one big flowing story that just kind of blends into everything. And what else is really interesting about this is that John, I'm sorry, Mark, kind of just takes select episodes and events in Jesus' life and he arranges them in a way to do something. I'll give you sort of the key to understanding the book. John presents the life of Christ as a journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And it's all about getting Jesus from Galilee to Jerusalem. So, even though the other Gospels indicate that Jesus made multiple trips throughout the regions, going down to Jerusalem multiple times back and forth, when you look at John's Gospel, he only shows Jesus in Jerusalem one time at the end of the story. Why might that be? Remember what he's trying to prove? He's trying to prove two things. What are they? Jesus is the Messiah, and he's the Son of God, okay? So the way that he does that is he takes us on a story. And he proves to us that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God, by taking us on this journey where Jesus is, he doesn't even cover the birth of Christ, he basically starts with the, with the ministry of John the Baptist. But he starts here in Galilee, and he shows it as Jesus' whole point is just to get to Jerusalem. Jesus is looking to Jerusalem. His whole point is to get to Jerusalem. Now why does he need to get to Jerusalem? Anybody want to guess? What happens at Jerusalem? You guys, we celebrated it um, last April. What happens at Jerusalem? What's in Jerusalem? The crucifixion. crucifixion. Jesus' whole life journey, according to Mark, is to get to to the cross. Why? Because that's what the Messiah had to do. So the proof that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God, is He gets to Jerusalem. His whole life is about getting to Jerusalem. He's got to get to Jerusalem because that's where the cross is and that's where His death will take place and His resurrection. And so what John does is he very carefully selects events and episodes in Jesus' life. To to paint this picture that it's just a journey for him. His whole point is to get there because that's his purpose. And if he can show us that that's exactly what Jesus did, he got to Jerusalem, then he's proven his point. I've just shown you that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. So even though the other Gospels indicate that Jesus did do a lot of traveling, what Mark does is he just selectively chooses things to sort of present it as a journey. So if all you had was a book of Mark, you wouldn't know that he visited Jerusalem and other places at other times. It's not that those things are unimportant to Mark. It's that he's, again, trying to give us a different perspective, if you will, and show us Jesus' life was about getting to Jerusalem. Because that's why the Messiah came. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? And he actually does some interesting things with the text as he does this to try to get us to do that. David mentioned it this morning. What did you tell me this morning, David, about reading the, reading the gospel? We had the conversation up here. What'd you say? I said it's exhausting. That it, it just keeps coming. It just and and, and yeah. immediately it just, mm-hmm. it's like a wrong statement. Why is that? A six-year-old that keeps coming and <laughs> and Yep. And, You get in the car and you drive back to Green Bay, Wisconsin and your kids in the back seat for the next 10 hours say, where are we? How much longer do we have to go? When are we going to get there? Because what? It's all about getting to Green Bay, right? So it's fast paced. In fact, I want you to look at something here. Mark chapter 1, verse 10. I want you to read these words with me, okay? Mark chapter 1, verse 10. Verse ten. You notice that it starts with the very first word is immediately. Look at verse twelve. Immediately. Look at verse eighteen. Immediately. Look at verse twenty. Immediately. Look at verse. Uh, is it twenty one? No, it's. Uh, I think it's actually twenty eight if you go down. Um, immediately. Look at verse twenty nine. And immediate. John uses the word immediately. Anybody want to guess how many times? I'm sorry, I keep saying, John, yeah, Mark. Well, his name is John Mark, so it's one of those things that gets stuck in my head. But how many times does he use the word immediately? Anybody want to guess? <laughs> if there were that many words, it Yeah, not quite that many. Well, okay, tw- we, got, we got 28 here. 39. 39? 26. 26? 40 times. Now, remember, I, t- I tell you guys this all the time. Look for the words that repeat Because authors repeat words for a reason. Forty times. And it's because, what's Mark trying to do? He's trying to get Jesus to Jerusalem. Immediately this, immediately this, immediately this. He's trying to make it a fast-paced story because he wants us to get to the climax, to prove Jesus is the Messiah. And the proof of that comes at his death, burial, and resurrection. So it is an exhausting book. It's intended to be read fast-paced. That might be one of the reasons, too, why he doesn't spend a lot of time on the teaching of Jesus. There's another gospel for that. Now, with that said, he doesn't ignore the teaching of Christ. You do see that throughout the book. It just doesn't have quite as much. I want you to... to, How many of you have a red-letter Bible red letter version of the Bible okay I want to show you something there's a great visual aid in this red letter nothing special about them although you know you think about they always highlight the words in red they say those are the words of Jesus well every word in here is the word of Jesus right but that's just where Jesus is speaking but I want you to do something just briefly look at like Mark how much red do we see in there I mean you might be able to see it here if you don't have a red letter Bible you know maybe there's 10% of the page is red you know Flip the next page. You might see that maybe 20% is red. Those are where Jesus is actually talking. Okay. Go to the next page. You maybe see that I don't know. I'd say about 30% is red. Next page, it's almost all black. That's where Mark's writing. Um, next page, maybe 20% is red. Okay. So most of it is black, right? Turn over to turn over to Matthew, and you'll see what I'm talking about here, guys. How much red do you see in Matthew? Yeah, you go to Matthew, it starts off pretty much black. But if you then flip, 60% of it's red. Almost 100% of it's red. That's maybe about 30% red. Oh, now we got most of it red again. At least half of it's red. Most of it's red. Isn't that an interesting visual? You can see where Matthew spends a lot more time simply writing what Jesus said, using his own words. Mark spends less time doing that. That's why there's less red, if you will, in Mark. Okay, But, here's what's interesting. There's two places in the Gospel of Mark where he pauses and focuses on Jesus' teaching. They're what, re- what are referred to as explanatory sections. What Mark does is he sort of gives us these events, because he's focusing on the events of Jesus' life. So he's, he, he, does, he shows us these events, because he's trying to prove who Jesus is, he's trying to get Jesus to Jerusalem, but then he takes these pauses, where he goes... It's time to explain some of this stuff. And so one of those explanations comes in chapter 4, where you have the parables. And he talks about the kingdom of God. And so what he basically does is in the very beginning of the gospel, Jesus says that he came to preach the kingdom of God. And so part of what Mark is doing is he's showing something about the kingdom of God through the events that he describes with Jesus. But then he pauses and lets Jesus tell us about the kingdom of God. And so in chapter 4... He takes a slight break from the events and has Jesus explain to us the kingdom of God through some parables. Then he goes back to the events. And then, a little bit later, he actually gets into another section where he describes the um, future events, if you will. So he actually has these two sections, chapter 4 and I think it's chapter 8, if I remember right, where he has these two Explanation sections. And what they actually do is they help us understand the events. So, in the first four chapters, or first three chapters, we see these events where Jesus is interacting. And what you find with those things is that some people respond to Jesus favorably, and some people respond to him unfavorably. And so the question is why? Yeah, Jesus Christ, he comes on the stage, he's performing these miracles, people are being healed. People are cutting holes in the roof because they're so convinced he can heal them. And yet, some people accept that, and some people don't. Why is that? So in that explanatory section, chapter 4, Jesus tells us why. So Mark uses the words of Jesus through parables to explain to us, why is it that some people enter the kingdom of God and some don't? And what he explains to us is, the parable of the soils... Some falls on good ground, some doesn't fall on good ground. Sometimes the birds come and eat it and take it away. Sometimes the, the weeds come up. And so that these two explanatory sections help us to understand the events that come before it and after it. Isn't that kind of interesting? If I were to write this out on a diagram, what you'd have is a bunch of events, then an explanatory section that looks backwards and forwards, tells us what just happened and why, tells us what's going to happen. Then we have some more events... And then we have another explanatory section that explains what came after and what comes before. And then we have some more events that lead up to the crucifixion. Something else that he does in the the book that's interesting. Remember at the very beginning it says that he's going to prove two things. Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. Do you think he might sort of use that to foreshadow the structure to his book? There's an interesting event that actually takes place. Look at chapter 8, verse 29, right about the middle of the book. I'm going to have you re- somebody read this. Can I get a volunteer just to read that verse for me? It's uh, chapter 8, verse 29. Go ahead and read that out loud for me. Okay. And he continued by questioning them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. Okay. Keep that in your mind. I want somebody to now turn and read chapter 15, verse 39 to me. Chapter 15, verse 39. Can I get one more volunteer? I can do Okay. One centurion of him, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. Now, did you catch that guys? Very first verse, he says, This is the beginnings of the gospel of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Halfway through the book, he has a confession by a Jewish guy who says, You are the Christ. That is the exclamation point for Mark. Then, at the end of the book, he has a Gentile, Roman, say, surely this is the Son of God. That's the other explanation point. Remember, he's going to prove to us Jesus is the Messiah, and he's the Son of God. That's our structure to the book. So, what he does, he he uses it as his introductory statement, and then halfway through, Jesus is Messiah. At the end, Jesus is the Son of God he does it with a Jewish confession, confession, and he does it with a Gentile confession. That kind of stuff excites me. Because when I was in high school, I loved English, but I didn't like literature. But when I see stuff like this, and I see how John has arranged this, the fact that he gives us exactly what his purpose is. Halfway through the book, he declares that, half that purpose solved, if you will, gets to the other end of the book, declares the second half of that purpose fulfilled he puts it in the words of a Jewish guy puts it in the words of a Gentile guy he uses phrases like immediately to push us through the book to show us that we've got to get to Jerusalem guys We come on, you got to come to Jerusalem with me because that's where it all takes place that's where the ultimate proof is that's why Jesus came so he's driving us through the book to do that something else he does and we'll see this next week if you look at Mark chapter 1 he's got one more piece in terms of the structure here there's what's called a prologue at the beginning of his book. Verse 1 is his purpose statement. Okay? Then he gives us an introduction, which is a um, it's a uh, prologue, if you will. I want you to see something here. He starts off in verse 2. He says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send a messenger ahead of you. He's talking about John the Baptist. Okay? And what he does is in verses two through eight. He talks about the witness of John the Baptist. And the reason that's important is because the Old Testament said, you'll know when the Messiah is there because I'm going to send a messenger just like Elijah. And he will announce Messiah. He will say, God in the flesh is here. He's going to prepare the way of the Lord. Then in verses 9 through 12, he reflects on the baptism of Jesus where God himself says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So did you see what John just did there? He says, I'm going to tell you Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. Then in his prologue, he spends the first half of his prologue saying he's the Messiah, because John the Baptist is here. And then the second half of the prologue, he says, and he's the Son of God, because God says he's the Son of God. So we have this interesting structure. Purpose statement, prologue that splits both of those. Purpose statement is, I'm going to show you he's the Messiah, I'm going to show you he's the Son of God. Then in the prologue, he says, see, he's the Messiah because John the Baptist, the forerunner's here. And he's the son of God because God said so at his baptism. Then in his book, he shows us all these things that prove that as a story. Halfway through, he says he's the Messiah. Then he gets to the end and says he's God. Kind of a neat little structure to the book. So we're going to use that as we go through the events. So next week, we're going to actually start with this prologue and work through that and kind of look at that. I'm going to share one last thing with you here um, that I think will help us in this book. And then we'll spend some time singing. Especially when it comes to the Gospels, it's important for us to look at the terms that are used um, as they reflect on who Christ is. I'm going to just share some of this with you. It's just real brief. Jesus uses his favorite phrase for himself. Anybody know what that favorite phrase is? Jesus referred to himself in a certain way throughout the Gospels. Son of man. Eighty times he uses that phrase of him. It's his favorite phrase. It's basically taken from Daniel chapter 7. And as much as we'd like to say it's a reference to his humanity, it's really not. Because in Daniel it's a reference to his deity. So when he refers to himself as son of man, it's actually a reference on his deity. Okay, He was fully human, but the word reflects more on his coming in the flesh. Well, he uses that 14 times in this book. It's the most frequently used t- phrase for Jesus in this book. So John is reflecting on his divinity. Son of God is used three times in the book. Messiah, or Christ, is used eight times. King of the Jews is used five times. King or Kingdom of God is another big one, used 14 times. And the reason for that is because Jesus is, again, ushering in the kingdom of God. We're going to have to spend some time on that. Um, that's why he came. Um, There's some interesting things, the interactions with the demons that take place. Why is that? Well, it's because they were living still under what I'm going to call the kingdom of Satan. The Bible refers to him as the ruler of this world, the prince of the air. Well, one of the reasons Jesus cast out demons was to show that he could exercise authority over the enemy, and that his time was coming to an end because the kingdom of God was being ushered in. And this parable he gives of having to basically um, confine the strong man of the house. Jesus refers to Satan as a strong man. He said, I came here basically to bind him because I'm going to plunder his house. And so the kingdom of God phrase is used throughout this book because that's partly what Jesus was doing. Other phrases, son of David three times, son of the most high two times, Son of the Blessed One. One time. So what we find here, and we'll, we'll, we'll sort of cite these things as we go through, is, what do we have, 14... There's got, got to be probably 30 references here, 30 ways that Jesus is referred to as either being Messiah or God throughout the book. And so again, that's John, John Mark's whole point is to prove that Jesus is Messiah, Son of God, and so he will use these phrases over and over and over from the mouth of Christ, from demons, who claims he's the son of God, to the high priest who calls him the son of the most high, to the guard at the cross that calls him the son of God. He's going to use those phrases over and over and over to drive this home so that we don't lose sight of the fact that that's what he's trying to prove to us. Okay, I'm going to pretty much end there. What we basically have here, again, is just an introduction that I'm hoping will sort of, um, as we go through it, you'll appreciate not just what mark is telling us but how he's telling it to us because i think that's just as important as um you know how something is written sometimes is as important as what's actually written so um, hopefully this will sort of lay the groundwork for us um i'm excited i've had a good time in this it's a challenging study but i think that um you'll be encouraged by it so if you would for next week um we'll be in the uh, prologue which is basically just chapter one up to um up to verse 14 or 15 right in there so